Well, this morning we return once again to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. You remember that last week we saw the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. And he did so by giving them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. But he's not done with the subject. And so we continue this morning in verses 5 through 13 to follow up with the teaching of Christ on the subject of prayer. Beginning with verse 5, we read this. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. We're dealing with a very loose definition of friend here. <laughs> I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who asks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, Jesus proceeds following then the Lord's Prayer to show his disciples how boldly they should come before the Lord to seek that which they need and how generously their Father would answer. This is what he's doing in this story. It's meant to be somewhat absurd. Whenever Jesus introduces a parable, uh, with this word suppose, or sometimes in other translations, which of you, we know that he's about to describe something that you know, would rarely have ever happened. And the question is a signal that the answer to the question is no one. Which of you? Suppose one of you did this, but you wouldn't. No self-respecting member of the covenant community would refuse to help a neighbor in need. And that wasn't because they were all such holy, righteous people. It wasn't because everybody in the old covenant community, which is the context in which Jesus is speaking here, was God. Because there was a cultural pressure 
that came upon people. In biblical times, hospitality was a sacred duty. When a guest arrived, especially a friend, the host had an obligation to provide not just the bare necessities, but to be lavishly generous about it. There are several notable examples in Scripture from the feast that Abraham provided for his three visitors, who later turned out to be, you know, God. So that was good. To the fatted calf that Jesus talks about in the parable of the prodigal son. Travel was difficult in those days. There were few reliable, safe, comfortable inns, and travelers usually arrived to their destination hungry. And so the first order of business was putting a good meal on the table for them. Bread, which is mentioned here specifically, was essential not just to eat itself, but to use for dipping and sopping up everything else that was on the plate. Bread was what was used instead of silverware. So this man in the story has a real problem. His bread was gone, and needless to say, there were no 24-hour mini-marts around. No online bakeries. And so when his friend arrives at midnight, he finds himself unable to meet the expected obligations of hospitality. You can't just say, hi, glad you made it. Now you can go to bed because I've got nothing for you. And send his friend to bed hungry. There was only one thing to do, which was to see if the people next door had anything. Under ordinary circumstances, he wouldn't think of taking advantage of his friendship by banging on his neighbor's door at midnight, but the demands of hospitality required that he do everything that he can. So he goes to what was clearly his neighbor's house, called a friend. He pounds on their door, making a reasonable request at an unreasonable hour. Would he please borrow some bread? Not for himself, but for a friend who had come from a far-off place. Now it's midnight, and his neighbor's family is already in bed. Remember, this is the first century. There's no electricity. So after dark, not a lot to do. So by midnight, this neighbor and his family have already been asleep for quite some time. That would be true if you came knocking on my door at midnight, too, by the way. <coughs> Ren sleep has already set in here. So the last thing this man wants to do at that hour of the night is get out of bed. So he tells his neighbor no, and he does it four different ways. <laughs> it was a quadruple refusal. Do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, none of these excuses is very persuasive. If the door was shut, doors typically have hinges, it can be open. The children woke up, they'd live, they'd fall asleep again. The real issue is not that the man could not help, it's that the man would not help. He had the bread, apparently, but it was too much of an inconvenience to get up and help. So, of course, his neighbor, already 
feeling embarrassed and awkward about having to come and knock on this door at midnight, of course, uh, does what I would probably do, which is to hang his head and slink away. <laughs> That's not what he does. This guy is not me. He won't take no for an answer. He keeps banging on the door. Now, Jesus doesn't provide us with the rest of the dialogue. But if anyone has ever tried to persuade you to do something that you didn't want to do, you probably know basically how the conversation goes. Eventually, the man in bed realized to his annoyance that it would be easier to give this man what he wants. And so, with a sigh of exasperation, he rolled out of bed, careful and careful not to crush his children, and he gave his neighbor what was needed. Didn't do it for love or friendship, but simply because he wanted to go back to sleep. And if this guy keeps banging on his door, that's not going to happen. He did it because his neighbor had the audacity to come at midnight and keep asking until he received what he needed. We're not told what their relationship was like after this. <laughs> Might have put a little strain. Might see some fences going up between yards after that. But that wasn't the point of Jesus' story. What was the point? The point Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples and to us is that we should come to God with the same kind of bold perseverance that this man did. The parable is not about the man in bed with his family. The key phrase in the parable comes in verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, there are two difficulties here. One is to determine which pronoun goes with which character in the story, and the other is to determine the precise meaning of a Greek word that is used here. The New American Standard translates the word perseverance. Because of his persistence, I should say, persistence, not perseverance. Because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. The English Standard Version translates it as impudence, which has a bit of a stronger connotation. Grammatically, we need to address who is the one who is being impudent. And the phrase, his persistence or his impudence, might refer to the man in bed. However, it's difficult to see how that attitude can serve as a rationale for his decision to get up and help his neighbor. Now, the man who is impudent, the man who is persistent, is the man who needs the bread. that word mean again? <coughs> to be impudent is to be impertinent. It's to be shamelessly presumptuous. <laughs> it is probably the most accurate understanding of this. It refers to someone who acts without any sensibility of shame or disgrace. We know the type. 
someone who doesn't particularly care what his neighbors think. And who has the, the audacity to come right out and ask for something that no one else would dare to mention, and if necessary, he has no problem doing it at midnight. That was this guy. So this is how we should pray, then. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate. We pray not timidly, dropping God hints about what we need, but boldly, even shamelessly, presenting our petitions before God and then continuing to pray about them Amen. until we get an answer, Amen. one way or another. Amen. Now, we need to be careful here. One of the problems that people have with parables comes about because they try to push parables too far. And they try to identify what every little detail in the parable means. And that's not how we are to understand parables. Parables are making one primary point. And so don't look at parables as allegories. They are not allegories. If we try to push the details too far, we end up making some serious errors here. Jesus is not saying that God gets annoyed with him when we pray at midnight. <laughs> or that he has to be cajoled into giving us what we need. Or that we should never take no for an answer. In fact, God is not like the neighbor at all. What Jesus wants us to understand about God is this, that if even the surliest of neighbors can be persuaded to get up out of bed and help us at midnight, then how much more will our Heavenly Father hear our prayers and respond? God, who never slumbers nor sleeps. God who loves to help His people in need. This is the God we pray to. And so... Why would we not come then boldly before the throne of grace, as Hebrews says? Amen. Seeking to bring our knees before the Father, who isn't merely anxious to get rid of us, but who loves us, and loves to commune with us, and loves to answer prayer. But we also need to understand what prayer is and what prayer is not. Prayer is not a way of getting God to do what you want Him to do. Where a lot of us get off track. We think prayer is some kind of you know, magic way of forcing God to give to us what we desire. Persuading Him to do something that He otherwise doesn't want to do. Have you ever considered how bizarre that is? God is a sovereign God Amen. in control of everything. Amen. But we're going to come along and try to convince him that what he had originally planned to do maybe wasn't the better, best idea. We've got a better idea. And Lord, I'm going to pray and try to convince you that you were wrong and I'm right. That's a weird way of looking at prayer. And yet, if you consider the way many people 
consider a prayer, that's at the root of it. That's what they're doing. Prayer is the manner in which we cooperate with God in accomplishing that which God has already determined He will do. So when we ask God to hallow His name, to establish His kingdom, to give us bread, to forgive our sin, to save us from temptation, we do that with a shameless persistence knowing that these requests are according to His will. Those are the prayers that he has promised to answer. If you pray according to my will, I will do whatever you ask. If you pray for the third house, if you pray for the Lamborghini, probably not. <laughs> Of course, God always has a prerogative to say no to our petitions. But when we pray the way that Jesus has just taught us to pray, as we saw last week, then we can come to God with the holy boldness of a confident faith, knowing that even if the answer to my specific prayer is no, my prayer will nonetheless be honored by God in the accomplishment of His purposes, which, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, is what I desire above all in At least I ought to. This is why, when we pray, we pray, Lord, meet my needs, Here's what's going on in my life. This is what I lay before you. This is what I, in my finite understanding, think might be a good outcome of this. But your will be done. Amen. Your will be done. Because ultimately, I want you to be I want your plan to be worked out in my life. And that plan I understand because I'm in your word, and I know what your word says, that plan for my life may include suffering. So we keep praying. As this man kept knocking on that door, we keep praying. Because in the end, what God wants from us is us. God wants us to keep coming to you. What an ungrateful child. who would come to his parents and make a request, have that request turned down, and then have no other relationship with his parents.
go away until he means something again. The Lord wants us to come to him not because of what we need, but because we need him. He wants to commune with his people. He wants fellowship with us. He wants communication with us. And sometimes that may be one of the reasons why our prayers are not answered immediately. Because the Lord knows who we are. He knows our flesh. And he knows, you know what? Here comes Harrison again. And if I give him what he wants now, I'm not going to hear from him again <laughs> for who knows how long. Oh, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Leon Morris, speaking of the lesson of this parable, says we must not play at prayer, but must show persistence if we do not receive the answer immediately. It is not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into answering. The whole context makes it clear that he is eager to give. But if we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, we do not want it very much. Mm -hmm. How much do you want the things that you pray for? Mm -hmm. you know, one, one aspect of this is how much do we want God? Shouldn't that be at the top of our prayers? Mm -hmm. Lord, I want you. That's why I'm here. Everything else under that heading is secondary. Yeah. I'm coming to pray because I want to commune with my Heavenly Father. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that we live in a world in which we are very needy. Lots of things going on in our lives, in our church, in our families, in the world. Mm -hmm. And the Lord says, bring it all. Bring it all and lay it before me. Because what I am going to do, I have chosen to do through prayer. Mm -hmm. Do you boldly persevere or do you get discouraged and give up? not daring to beg God for an answer. Persevering in prayer means praying. Praying and praying and praying. You pray without ceasing for people to be saved. George Mueller prayed for one of his friends for more than 60 years. And that prayer was ultimately answered. The man came to faith in Christ after Mueller's death. Can you imagine? Praying 60 years and never seeing the fruit of your prayer. And yet, God is not confined to your lifetime. You have, parents, you have, you have children not walking with the Lord? Don't give up. Pray. 
You don't know what the Lord is going to do. And on the day you die, you won't know what the Lord is yet going to do. Don't give up. Pray and pray and pray. This kind of prayer means praying and praying and praying some more for the global work of the gospel. If the lost Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist nations of the world are to see the light of Christ, it will come about through the persevering prayers of God's people. Persevering in prayer means praying and praying and praying again for our church. Asking God to send the Holy Spirit in all of His renewing, reviving, reforming power. To persevere in prayer is to pray and pray and pray again for His transforming work in our families. To heal those wounds. To make us love when love is not what is returned to us. It just calls us to be to, to, to grow strong as we serve one another. We should be praying and praying and praying for our own personal growth in God. Pleading with God, begging with Him to give us victory over selfishness and sin. Why do we pray this way? Not because God is counting our prayers and waiting till we reach a given number before He answers. But because when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, have the audacity to continue to tell your father what you need. Don't give up. Keep knocking. I'm not pretending that kind of prayer is easy. It's not. It's hard to pray that way and to keep on praying. J.C. Ryle once wrote, it is far more easy to begin a habit of prayer than to keep it up. Thousands take up a habit of praying for a little season after some special mercy or special affliction and then little by little become told about it and at last lay it aside. Let us resist this feeling whenever we feel it rising within us. Let us resolve by God's grace that however poor and feeble our prayers may be, we will pray on. We will pray on. And what Ryle says there about prayer and its connection with feeling is so important. We do not pray because we feel like it. We do not pray because it creates within us some kind of emotion. We do not pray because we in this particular moment feel a particular closeness to our Father. We pray because prayer is what we are called to do. We pray because prayer is what we need. We pray because prayer is the way we come into that relationship with our Father, which sometimes, not always, sometimes gives us that sense of His immediate presence with us. Mm. But we don't do it for the feeling and we don't need to do it because of the feeling. If I don't feel like praying, that's the time I really need to pray. I 
pray because of who God is. Not because of how He makes me feel. And to help us pray on, Jesus applies His parable with some of the most encouraging words in Scripture in verses 9 and 10. I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now we've seen already, this parable is more about how we should pray than about how God answers. God's going to answer the way he will. That has nothing to do with how we pray. But in the application of the parable, both our part and God's part are clearly in view. Our duty is to ask and to seek and to knock. There seems to be a progression here, doesn't there? It's, it's one thing to ask, but to seek requires a higher level of commitment. To seek is to pursue that which is asked for. Then to knock is to pound at every door for an answer. Those three verbs move in the direction of a more serious intention to get what God has to offer. If you lose something on the street, you can stand out in the street and if somebody walks by, you can ask them about it. Have you seen this? Or, better yet, you can walk up and down the street and look for it. If you're really serious, you go to every house on the street and knock on the door and ask if they've seen what you have lost. There is a progression here in what Jesus is describing. And what's even more important is the form of these verbs that he uses. All three of them describe a continuous action. So here in the New American Standard, for instance, uh, verse 9 says this, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. But if you've got a marginal reference, and it may actually do this in some of other uh, translations, you'll see that what it means is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Again, and again, and again, and again. We do this for the very first time when we ask God to save us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask God to give us eternal life. Mm -hmm. We seek to know for sure what the Bible says about the cross and the tomb. And we knock on the door of salvation until Jesus opens the way to God. The Puritans understood They would often talk about battling our way into the kingdom. We come to God even after we come to Christ, continuing to pursue Him, however, asking for what we need, seeking what God has for us to find, knocking on the door of His Word prayerfully. 
the sense of the verse is keep on asking and it will be given. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be opened to you. And Jesus there ties together our persistence and God's efficacy. Prayer works as you work at prayer. Now be careful. Watch how you define work. When we talk about prayer working, what are we talking about? We're not talking about getting what we want. We're talking about God's will being done. We're talking about God keeping His promises. Prayer has this kind of efficacy. Not because of the way we pray, but because of the way God answers prayer. He's a generous Father who loves to give what we truly need. And when we have the audacity to pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, God has promised to hear us and to answer us. In the dialogue of prayer, we are pressing God for something that He is longing to give. Brothers and sisters, we still need to get that ingrained in us. Because that's oh, that is so often not the way we look at prayer. We pray like God is some stingy old guy in the sky. And we have to try to convince him to open up his hand and to let go that which he is so reluctant to give. Oh, that's not God. That is not our Father. Our Father is open-handed. Our Father is generous. Our Father longs to give what we need, and our Father knows what we need. Far better than we do. And so when we pray with persistence, we also pray with trust. When I come to the Lord in prayer and I pray for this, God may know what I really need is this. He's not going to ignore my prayer because I'm praying for the wrong thing. When I pray, it's about my relationship. And God's going to honor that prayer because my heart is with Him. And He's going to use my prayers, as feeble as they may be, in the accomplishment of His purposes. Jesus is assuring us here in these verses that God will answer our prayers. And He offers this assurance not just once, not just twice, but six times. Three in verses 9, three in, verses, in, in verse 10. In verse 9, Jesus says, keep asking, it will be given. Keep seeking, you will find. Keep knocking, it will be opened. And our asking and our seeking and our knocking, that will not be in vain. God will give. God will reveal. God will open. Everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. He who, who knocks, it will be opened. And in case we have any doubt about this, this is what Jesus goes on to say, to make it very explicit. If you didn't understand verse 9, Jesus says, let me give you verse 10. So there is no misunderstanding here. 
He's simply repeating himself to give extra assurance that our prayers will indeed be answered. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying, as we have said over and over, that God will give us anything and everything we want. In this context, he's talking about the way God answers the petitions that we make, which he has described in the Lord's Prayer. Don't separate this, brothers and sisters. We keep this in context, just like we keep every other aspect of Scripture in its context. It, Jesus has, in, in, when Jesus gets to verse 5, he doesn't go on to something that is unrelated to what he's just said. He assumes that what we are persistently praying for is what he's just told us to pray for. That the Father's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that each day would re, re, we would receive our daily bread, that he would forgive us our sins, and that we would forgive others and not be led into temptation. You want a picture of how to pray according to the will of God? There you have it. As we discover when we get to the end of verse 13, Jesus is talking most specifically about spiritual blessings that God gives to every believer in Christ Jesus. And if we ask for these things, we're going to receive them. Now notice that this promise is for everyone who asks, seeks, and knocks. This gives special encouragement to anyone who has never yet come to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Or who is afraid that God will not graciously welcome them. If you have never come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you have never come to the Father to have your sins forgiven through the person and work of Jesus upon the cross, as he gave his own life in the place of sinners, and then rose again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, if you have never done that, then what you need to come away from this message with is this. You are welcome. God will welcome you. You want a prayer that, Jesus, that, that, that the Father always hears? It's a prayer in which the sinner comes to him and says, I come in the name of your Son, casting myself upon the cross. Save me. God will hear. God will answer. Everyone who asks in faith will receive. Everyone who seeks with a sincere heart will find. Everyone who knocks on the door of Jesus Christ will be saved. Jesus is telling us not to hold back, but to go to the Father and ask for what we need. The promises that Jesus makes there in verses 9 and 10 are so immense that they may seem impossible for God to keep. So to prove that God really is this generous, Jesus adds these two little parables that come from family life in verses 11 and 12. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not get him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, 
He will not get in a scorpion, will he? Once again, Jesus asks a question that is meant to sound absurd. What kind of father would give his son a snake when he's asked for a fish? Or a scorpion when he's asked for an egg? A man who did such a thing would be a fiend and not a father. Sadly, there are such men in the world, but the point still stands. No ordinary father would be so cruel as to give his son something dangerous when he is asked for something good. And having made that point, Jesus then proceeds to argue from the lesser to the greater in verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now at this point, some of us might be tempted to say that Jesus is being a little hard on dads. Is it really right for him to say that we are evil? After all, he was speaking here to his disciples, who may not have been the best of fathers, but probably weren't the worst either. But of course, it's right for Jesus to say this, because he is speaking from his intimate knowledge of human depravity. He knows that fathers are capable of doing something good, as he describes. In fact, the parables there in verses 11 and 12 assume this, but he also knows that the, that the hearts of fathers are as wicked as anyone else's, and that our, in our sinful nature, we are as likely to harm our children as not. Nevertheless, for all of our shortcomings, most of us fathers know what our children need and we seek to provide that for them. And when they come to us asking for something, we listen to what they are saying. We provide what they truly need, and if we are able, we provide much more than that. We desire to give to our children generously, lavishly. The point is that if even fathers who are fallen and sinful know how to give good gifts, we can trust our perfect Heavenly Father to give us Amen. the best gift of all. Amen. Amen. Knowing that we can count on God's fatherly care yeah. gives us confidence when we pray. That's why we're commanded. Come boldly before the throne of grace. I experienced this when my sons were younger. And typically when someone comes to the door of my study, uh, they knock rather cautiously um, and wait to be invited in. Because, you know, they don't want to disturb me if I'm involved in something. And I appreciate that. My sons, when they were younger, on the other hand, would just burst right in. And rightfully so. What would be impudent for anyone else was for my sons a natural act that never gave them a second thought. This is the way that Jesus taught us to pray to our Father. We don't have to wait outside 
his door. He says, come. And come forward. Come with a boldness based on, Jesus says, the benevolence of a father's love. God wants to answer even more than we want to ask. We need to believe that when we pray. Richard Phillips tells the story of a man who approached Alexander the Great with a financial need. And the famous conqueror referred the man to his royal treasurer with the promise that he would have whatever he needed. Didn't even ask. Soon the treasurer comes running in, in a state of alarm because the man asked for this vast sum of money. And the treasurer was certain that there must be some mistake. But Alexander, very calmly, confirmed that he would give the man whatever the man asked for. He said, he has treated me as a king in asking, and so I shall be as a king to him in giving. Alexander was not going to be stingy because he saw one characteristic of being a king is generosity. We serve the king of the universe. Our father owns the cattle on a thousand million. And it's not, of course, limited to that that's just the psalmist's way of saying the Lord owns everything. There is nothing that exists that God does not own. And he is the greatest king that has ever existed. And he wants to give like a king gives. Generously. Abundantly. Liberally. In fact, he has already done it, hasn't he? He who did not spare his own son, yes. but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8. God has given us his generous invitation, offering us everything that we need that comes in Jesus Christ. The question is whether we will go to him and ask him for what we need and see and knock until he answers. Last thing to notice is the surprising twist that comes at the very end of this passage. Jesus had been teaching his disciples how to pray to the Father. And first he gave them a model for their daily prayers, which is what we call the Lord's Prayer. Then he told them how to approach God in prayer with sanctified audacity, coming boldly. And next he encouraged them that when they came to God, asking, seeking, and knocking, he would hear them as a loving father hears his children. But what exactly does God promise to do for them? And this is where the surprising part comes in, because Jesus says there in verse 13, how much more will your heavenly Father 
give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And I get through that passage, and I come to that last line of verse 13, and I ask, where did that come from? <laughs> the Holy Spirit hasn't been mentioned up to this point. Neither in the Lord's Prayer or the instructions that Jesus gives about asking and seeking and knocking, but it's also surprising because Jesus seems to be talking about earthly blessings up to this point. The parable of the, the friend at midnight and the father's gifts all deal with material needs. And then Jesus comes to the end of his instructions on prayer. And he promises that when we ask, God will give us the Holy Spirit. In reality, this is the climax of the entire passage. The Son promising that the Father will give us the Spirit. Amen. Want a passage that deals with the Trinity? There you go. Of all the gifts that God could possibly give us, none is greater than the gift of God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. If we don't believe this, it's only because we don't know the greatness of the Spirit's person or the scope of the Spirit's work. When we pray, and then we find that our Heavenly Father will give us the Holy Spirit, you know what that's saying? That's just another way of saying that, that the Father will give you the very best He has. Amen. The Father will give you everything without holding back anything. And to demonstrate the unique blessing of having the Spirit, one only needs to consider the extraordinary ministry of the apostles once they received the, the, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They had the power to perform miraculous wonders, to preach a gospel that changed the world. Yes. That's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a great gift because He is Himself God. There's one God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Spirit fully shares in the divine majesty. He is to be worshipped with the Father and the Son. And so when the Son then promises that the Father will send us the Spirit, He is promising that God Himself will live within us. And that, brothers and sisters, is what happened. When Jesus went to the cross, and was buried and rose again and ascended to the Father. What did He promise to do when that happened? He promised to send His Spirit. And now, whenever someone comes to faith in Christ, He is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And what will the Spirit do in us? He will reveal the truth of God through the teaching of Scripture, which He Himself first revealed. He will give us the conviction of sin, granting us the gift of repentance. He will persuade us of the truth of the gospel, working in us the gift of faith. By faith, He will unite us to Christ so that it is only through the Spirit that we receive the blessings of salvation, justification, sanctification, adoption, and everything else. The Spirit of God does all of this. And that's not all. It's only the beginning. The Spirit will win us the victory over sin. The Spirit will equip us with spiritual gifts for the building up of the body. 
The Spirit will grow us in the fruit of godliness. The Spirit will assure us that we are the children of God. One day the Spirit will raise us from the dead. Just as He raised Jesus from the dead. And by this transforming grace, He will change us into glory. You see what a great blessing it is when Jesus promises us the Holy Spirit. We think of all those things that you know, are the normal, everyday occurrences of life in a fallen world. And we need help for all of that. And Jesus knows that. And yet, he says, come, pray, bring all of those material needs before God, before your Father. And I will tell you something, Jesus says. He says, I want you to know that your Father is so great and so wonderful and so generous. He loves you so much that he will give you the Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle summarized by saying, The Holy Spirit is beyond doubt the greatest gift which God can bestow upon man. Having this gift, we have all things. Life, light, hope, heaven. Having this gift, we have God the Father's boundless love, God the Son's atoning blood, and full communion with all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Having this gift, we have grace and peace in the world that now is, and glory and honor in the world to come. In short, to have the Holy Spirit is to have everything that God desires to give us. And Jesus has promised that this Spirit is ours for the asking. And if you have that, if you have come to the Father through Jesus in repentance and faith, then the Holy Spirit is yours. And with the Holy Spirit, everything else that the Father wants to give to you. John Newton, of course, uh, many of you are familiar with him, is the author of Amazing Grace. He was, prior to his conversion, an infamous slave trader, who by the grace of God became a famous preacher and hymn writer. Newton was captain of the slave ship called Greyhound when the ship was caught in a violent storm at sea. And in the middle of the night, the upper timbers of the ship were shattered. Water gushed into Newton's cabin. And as he, as he clambered up on deck, the man next to him on the ladder was swept overboard and lost. And Newton took the helm of the ship, and in the desperate hours that followed, he reflected on the life that he had wasted by living without God. And he thought to himself, as he describes it, there never was nor could be such a sinner as myself. Then, comparing the advantages I had broken through, I concluded at first that my sins were too great to be forgiven. How could a wretched sinner like John Newton ever find grace? As he held on for dear life, Newton began to reason that the best way forward was to ask for the power of the Spirit and then to live by the truth of the Gospel. His thinking was influenced, he later said, by his reading of Luke chapter 11, verse 13, where God promises to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Amen. And when Newton asked for the Spirit, God made good on His promise and gave him the greatest of all gifts, saving this wretched sinner by His amazing grace through the power of the Spirit. And God is ready and willing to same thing for you. Mm -hmm. He will 
Because this is a request that Jesus has guaranteed the Father will always answer. Yes. All you need to <clears throat> Father, thank you. Thank you for the riches that are ours in Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are our Father, that you love us, that you desire to listen to us, to commune with us, and you desire, Father, to utilize our prayers in the accomplishment of your purposes. We thank you, Father, for all of this in Jesus' name.
with his righteousness. And now, because we are in union with Christ, our Father welcomes us. And we are recognized as his children because we are in union with his only Son. So, if you're here this morning, and perhaps you've never heard that before, perhaps you've never understood that before, I want to invite you this morning, give your sins to Jesus, and come to the Father in faith. Repent, trust in Christ, and the promise is that God the Father will welcome you as his child. Amen. And if you will do that today, this table is for you. If you will do that today, you not only have a Savior, you not only have a Heavenly Father, you not only have the Spirit to indwell you, you have a new family as well. You have brothers and sisters. Because God said, if you're mine, then you're also one another's. If you're here this morning and you have never done that, you don't believe that, you won't do that, then we're still glad you're here. We love you and we're glad that you're here to hear what we have said today. But this table is not for you. This table is for God's people. If you know yourself not to be one of God's people, please don't participate. If you are, however, we are also warned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we are to come to the table in a worthy manner. We are to come recognizing that we are sinners, certainly. That's true of all of us. But we are also to come as those who desire to repent of our sin not those who desire to hang on to. So if there's anything in your life that you need to deal with this morning, do it now. Seek the forgiveness of God, repent of it, turn away from it. Don't let bitterness or resentment or any other sin keep you from the table today. thanks for the word. Father, we give you thanks because of what you did for us, your people. You hung on the cross, you suffered, you were, we should have suffered because of our sins. And in that remarkable feat, you took our sins, placed them upon yourself, but took your righteousness and placed it upon us. So that today, we can actually come boldly before you and your throne. Asking, seeking, knocking, and knowing that the Spirit of God will be given to us. So, Father, as we take these elements, we observe your commandments to do this in as much as we gather, so that we can remember the great cost of our salvation. This we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.